this is a long con, but I would basically <laughs> follow Caesar around all the time and prophesy his doom on random <laughs> like festival days for years, years. And then I'd like go away for like like a couple months, like like beginning of 44 BC. Like I I I, I don't I I'm, I'm I'm gone. And then like he lets his guard down for a while, and then some other guy is like Caesar, beware the eyes. He's gonna be like, oh fucking another guy, great, screw you, pal. And then he goes and gets killed. That's I think my con. it only works yeah. if you keep swapping out disguises, like yeah. Groucho glasses, a wig, different colored mm-hmm. togas. Uh, yeah. And when this other guy pops up, it's like I know it's you, you fucker. <laughs> so. Even the fact that I believe in the play, it's his wife who prophesies his doom. I don't think that. A lot of uh, people prophesy yeah, his doom. Oh, yeah, I forgot, Left yeah. and right. It's well, like seven different yeah. people. <laughs> We're like, yeah. where are the eyes? And he's like, ah, the yeah, pull the other one. He's got bells on. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Overly Sarcastic Podcast. I am Blue, and as always, I'm joined by Red. I have some really tasty raspberry tea with me today, so I'm doing good. And today we have a very special guest. We are joined by Dr. Garrett Ryan of the YouTube channel Told in Stone of all things Roman history and archaeology. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. This is a real pleasure. Oh, yeah, I, uh, I stumbled onto your channel um, uh, however many months back with your video on if you are a time traveler and happen to be going to the Colosseum, how do you get the good seats? And I saw that video. I'm like, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> Show me everything. That could uh, be so more I've, your shit if it tried. It, yeah, exactly. So I'm a huge fan nip. of your work. Uh, love everything you do. And I'm so excited to have you. Uh, on the show today. Uh, I am ever so slightly worried. It's like sending in a really important assignment. It's like, oh God, I hope they don't hate it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, this is, uh, yeah. this is very fun. Oh, um, thanks so much. So for those of our viewers who do not yet know your channel, could you briefly uh, explain Told in Stone um, and uh, your, your line of work on YouTube? Sure. Well, as you said, it's mostly Roman stuff. You know, I, I was trained to be an ancient historian, so it's both ancient Greece and Rome, but uh, demand seems to be all about Roman stuff, so Roman stuff is what most of the videos feature. I hate that um, just a lot of, Exactly. Um, a lot of daily life, so things like in the seats of the Colosseum, uh, things like uh, bad neighborhoods in ancient Rome, these little details that are overlooked often in, you know, survey histories, but people seem to be very curious about, and I, as a historian, find fascinating to explore and uh, sort of feature uh, on YouTube. Yeah, it's it's very cool. We can talk about this a little bit more in a bit, but it's it's so fun to to get into those little bits of the history that it feels like we shouldn't know. Yet the <laughs> the wealth of sources that we have from ancient Rome allow us to figure out these kinds of things. Where like, there's so many other societies where it's like, okay, what was the king's name? And in Rome, it's like, yeah, right. we know where the bad neighborhoods were. That's <laughs> that that astounds me every single time. But we'll we'll get to a little bit more on that later. I always feel like in the study of history, part of what makes it easy to sort of like have your eyes glaze over, and by you I mean me, uh, is when it can, it takes like a depersonalized top-down approach of like, here's 3,000 years of history, and here's the basic gist, and like a couple important names that popped up. And that sort of fosters this attitude that history is a thing that happens to other people, rather mm-hmm. than the sum total of all of human experience, which we are living right now. Uh, and I think kind of getting into the weeds with the specific personal details that someone actually alive then would think about as being important rather than which side were they stamping the face of the king on the coins this century? Like nobody cares about that. But a lot of them would be curious about like what neighborhood do you not want to walk through at 9 p.m. on the way back from a lion fight or whatever? Yeah. And if yeah. you break your bones getting into a scuffle in said bat neighborhood at 9 p.m., what kind of medical care are you going to be getting? Yeah. <laughs> right the important yeah. things. Hey, here's yeah. why you'll die from that medical care. 
Yeah. <laughs> and uh, exactly, like the whole idea that this will be on the test is the <sighs> attitude you approach history from. Yeah. Uh, it just ruins so many people. Um, you know, it ruins history in the minds of so many people. Mm-hmm. And so if I can dispel some of that, then I'm doing yeah, the right thing and- on YouTube. And I feel like this is a thing that we see a lot of, you know, commenters like, oh, why isn't real school this fun? It's because we're not testing you guys. It's because you (laughs) guys show up and watch as much as you want. And then you can just go home and live your life afterwards. Yeah. School Mm -hmm. by its nature is kind of preaching to a captive audience. And uh, (laughs) YouTube is very free range. You can come and go as you please. You know, you're a latchkey kid in our neighborhood. So everything (laughs) works out fine. Yeah. But, um, well... Fun stuff. Reasons I, I, yeah. I love doing this job so much. But uh, Red, uh, jumping on to the other side of the world, uh, you had a video most recently on the myth of Tokoyo and the sea monster. Yeah. This is the kind of myth that I feel like a lot of other more famous myths trace their mythological lineage back to, you know? That's kind of the vibe I got on this one. (laughs) Well, there is also the possibility that it's the other way around, because as I mentioned in the intro, the legitimacy of this folktale cannot be verified. Uh, It was written by a British man uh, who made a habit of touring the exotic East and writing down all of his frequently rather racist and misogynistic (laughs) observations of the people who lived there. Uh, And some of that involved him writing down folktales. And sort of the question becomes, like, how legitimate is this? Why can we find no corollaries, no other tellings of this specific story? And is that the result of malice and a a direct uh, attempt to manipulate? Or is it the result of maybe he didn't fully know what he was hearing and didn't have the context (laughs) or got the names wrong or the locations? Or did he actually sort of Frankenstein a folktale together out of just things that he thought was cool? Because... It does share a lot of lineage with a lot of, like, very well-known myths. It's a person fighting a sea monster to which young girls are being sacrificed on the regs. That's classic Perseus stuff. That's even kind of classic Beowulf stuff, like I mentioned in the video. So it's not exactly, like, a new thing, but it's not quite in line with a lot of other Japanese folktales. And the question is, like, is this a legitimate story that's being filtered through a rather biased narration? Or is it not a legitimate story? So who's to say? And uh, the the inability to trace down where exactly this story came from is something that's kind of interesting that a few people have talked about. Uh, I found like a Reddit thread from years ago where people were like, can anyone find like, like any other telling of this story? Like, I really want to know more about Tokoyo. I want to know about the sea monster. Like, did it have a name? Was it a god? And people were like, eh. <laughs> literally all we have is this guy's diary. So... Um, There's actually a middling Disney Plus series that goes into the backstory of the sea monster. No one asked for it. (laughs) (laughs) It's part of the Disney strategy of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, (laughs) Tokoyo will be in Avengers Wave 4. Oh, Uh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, it was uh, was cool. It was one of those myths slash folktales where, like, it's pretty short. I sort of needed to, you know... (laughs) Stretch it out just a smidge to get anything worthy of, like, a video out of it. But just the discussion of the context and, like, the sort of historical background and the fact that people with the general attitude of, man, my uh, Western civilization is so boring and lame. I should go somewhere really cool and exotic and stay there forever and never learn anything (laughs) about the culture I'm exoticizing so much. Uh, It's just kind of funny to me that uh, the more (laughs) things change, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, it was fun to unpack, and it was kind of weird, because I was like, all right, the illustrations in this book are, like, by the guy who, you know, wrote the story down. Like, he drew the sea monster as this sort of dragon thing, and in my head, it's like, 
is this, like, what is this? Because Japanese folktales have a lot of different classifications for weird stuff. It's like, okay, it's a dragon. Dragons are frequently divine, especially in mythology that originates in China. So could that be sort of what's going on here? Or maybe it's a yokai, because uh, there are a lot of, well, yokai itself covers a huge amount of ground. That's everything from like ghosts to demons to gods, like minor spirits and stuff like that. And it could be any of those things, but it's not really specified. And it's like, oh, you're sacrificing to it because it controls the weather. Well, that's not unheard of for dragons and gods and stuff. But what is it? And it's like, I don't know. It's a sea monster. It's a monster that lives in the sea that eats people. What do you want from me? So yeah, I, I, given that the, the visual presentation is like very, you know, dragon forward, it would be hilarious if we were somehow able to find out that like the original version of this myth wasn't really a dragon, but like like a really big, angry looking trout. <laughs> that just like over time, like cultural mythological drift, it was like, oh, it was a dragon. But like some fisherman in like 1470 during the Sengoku period found this really, really big fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Admittedly, a lot of dragons started their lives as really big fish in uh, classical mythology. You know, Bahamut, really, really big fish. Tales old as time. Anyway, so yeah, it was um, it was fun to unpack uh, as much as I could. But it was also kind of funny to be like, oh, cool. What's the context? Hit a straight wall there. <laughs> like, yeah. there's nothing. I'm sorry, you got nothing. Uh, I mean, even which was still, that's kind of, of like. There have been a couple videos on the channel this year, like um, God, what was it? The uh, the the Norse the the bracelet one from earlier. I forget oh. the name. But yeah, the, that uh, one the where seal like, fight. Yeah, the <laughs> seal fight walls. where, like, the, the context is there is no context. Here's why there's no context. Well, but and that, that one was interesting. that in an interesting discussion. Yeah, in this case, it's like there's no context because it was cut off from cultural context. Like, he just wrote down the story and did not include specific details. Uh, I had a similar experience um, in the Sun Maiden and the Crescent Moon video because that, that book of just compiled Siberian folktales goes as far as saying what specific, like, group the story originated from and no other details. So it's like, okay, hey, some of these names are the same across stories. Do they apply to the same entity? You hit a wall. There's nothing about that. There's no yeah. context. There's no who told the story, who told these groups of stories. You don't get anything like that. So you yeah. sort of just end up hitting a wall about, like, well, okay, I'm finding these patterns, but is there actually anything there? And the problem is, uh, when you're doing the kind of research that I do, if you find a pattern and you can't confirm that it's real, the desire to state it anyway <laughs> is very strong. <laughs> and the number of times I've done a video where I've been like, this is just me conspiracy theorizing. This is only me, as far as I can tell, nobody else has made this connection. And then people will still be like, as stated with certainty by this channel, this thing is absolutely true. And then I get like actual, like, like anthropologists and archaeologists on my ass being like, how dare you mislead these people? And I'm like, I put so many caveats on that. It's not my fault that it got clipped or whatever. Um, no matter what we do, there's never enough caveats that we can place on, yeah. on a YouTube video. <laughs> but it is always interesting to sort of find that, like, it's, it's very fun to find an unbroken chain of information, but it's also fun to find where it cuts off and then sort of you know, just mull over the uh, the fragility of the chain of information and citations and stuff like that. Uh, and as I've gotten better at finding, like, researching my sources and following the citations, the more I find, like, oh, there's, like, there's actually nothing after this point. This just kind of appeared from nowhere. Uh, some of the older videos, the chain is embarrassingly short. Uh, <laughs> I recently, what was it? Uh, it was the Nerites video, uh, the guy who got turned into a shrimp. Uh, someone pointed out that the character of his sister does not appear to be present in like either of the fragmentary original tellings and may have originated from a Wikipedia edit. That was an embarrassing <laughs> blunder on my part. In my defense, that video is very old at this point. Um, yeah. 
But it, it, like that's the kind of thing. That's why I have to be so much more careful because that's that's embarrassing, you know. Uh, <laughs> but as I've gotten much better at doing my my research on context, it's kind of fun to just find the points where it's like that's all you get. We have one fragmentary primary source left. And that's all we have. And if there are parallels to other things, we can't confirm that they're connected to each other. Um, and this one was kind of an interesting case of that because it's so cut off. With the with the Norse seal fight, the, the, the necklace myth, that was interesting because there were just enough little fragments that were yeah. overtly connected to it that it's like, like, okay. Like a yeah. thing here, a thing there. It's very cork boardable, whereas this yeah. one, it's <laughs> just like there's one pin. And yeah. then it stops. <laughs> that that myth kind of felt like it had been a thousand piece puzzle and I had like seven bits. And it's like these yeah. none of these fit together, but if I place them where I think they go, I might be able to extrapolate what the picture on the box looked like. And in this case, it's like you get nothing. You get a little snow globe of a myth. Have fun. Um, and I honestly had a lot of fun with that because sometimes it's relaxing to just be like, hey, man, look, I did my best. Here's what I got. Because <laughs> um, yeah. a lot of times it's like there's an infinite like tar pit of research that you can kind of delve into. And it's like there's I can't I mean, you know, the to the historians on this call, like, you know, there's never enough context. You can never put everything into one video. So, you know, it, it, it's kind of like, where do I cut myself off? Where do I stop? <laughs> and the answer is you kind of have to make that call because you're never going to reach yeah. a point where you're like, that's it. I've done it. Everything there is to know about Rome. <laughs> like, obviously, <laughs> yeah. that ne that's never going to happen. But you're going to get someone in the comments who's like, I can't believe you didn't mention this specific bit of graffiti on Pompeii that was like uh, a dick joke <laughs> or whatever. It's so important and you didn't mention it in your 10 minute video. How could you? So it's kind of nice sometimes to just get something where it's like, here's where it starts. Here's where it ends. That's all you get. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Red, it was really irresponsible of you to not include an entire history of Japan up until the point where the guy showed up. I think that I know, really, right? Uh... <laughs> it, that, that context would have really made it seem much more powerful when he showed up and started wearing kimonos and posing. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so yeah, that, that about covers my side of things. Uh, I feel like the rest of this is probably going to be a little more heavily historically skewed, uh, which is good. Right. That means uh, I let's can go, sit back. Garrett. <laughs> yeah, let's no, go. A limbering up over here. Yeah, um, so I, I will say I, that I, I had... It, it, Oh, oh, sorry, sorry that uh, that oh. infinite tar pit of research summarizes my grad school experience pretty aptly. Ah, uh, <laughs> um, yes. So I, I do yeah. sympathize. Yeah. Um, my the PhD woes. We've heard them secondhand. <laughs> I, uh, I will always refer back to the example of some uh, someone, a mutual friend, who did a thesis on messenger characters in the Iliad, and that was mm. all they did for six yeah. years. I'm like, oh my god. And like, so people say that I'm I'm too much of a Mediterraneanist. By like any other standard, I'm a filthy generalist and know nothing about anything. <laughs> well, that's the god. thing. You know, history and anthropology and archaeology, it's fractal. You zoom in and it's just mm, as complicated yeah. as the zoomed out version. Yeah. Just so I had a, <laughs> of, of all the fun. time I've already spent talking about Augustus, I wanted for this one uh, to do a video specifically on the, the Arapacus, the altar of Augustine peace in Rome, which I have not seen in person and it kills me. Yeah, um, but I wanted to do a video just on that, like a nice, like five minute, you know, in and out, brief, great, self-contained story. And I'm like, oh, well, if I'm talking about the Arapacus, I, I, it, it was right next to the mausoleum um, in the reconstruction in the 1930s. So I'll need that context. So I need to explain the mausoleum was, uh, there's also the sundial right next to it, and I should probably explain the whole thing with, like, how the campus Martius was laid out, and I kind of need to contextualize the pomerium, too, and, well, fuck it, since I'm <laughs> here, I might as well explain the entire Augustan building program in the city of Rome. It's Damn it. If you give a mouse a cookie approach to anthropological investigation. <laughs> exactly. So it really, it was, it was 
the most extreme example of just one more thing in the course of doing my research because usually like I know when I'm beat pretty early and if the video is going to like run away from me in scope I, I can usually tell kind of off the bat but this one it was like oh oh no oh oh, oh god and every time I saw something else I'm like yeah I gotta put that in damn it so it of course balloons to, to a regular size video oh well I, I had fun with it <laughs> um, but it was really cool because it's this beautiful piece of sculpture work that we don't usually get a lot of like we think of you know greek sculptures and roman copies of greek originals but there is such a rich you know roman artistry of sculpture that we see in the uh, altar of peace and then the whole language of augustan propaganda that kind of emanates out of it is absolutely wild um there's there's truly so much to the Augustan propaganda campaign before he became emperor. I talked about it in my Age of Augustus video of like with the coins and portraying like this contest of like Apollo versus Hercules with with him versus Antony. And there's like all this stuff that I even still, I didn't even touch any of that. It's like just as he's emperor, how does he justify him being a king? Apparently with some, some temples and stuff. Propaganda, baby. <laughs> yeah, God. Yeah. I, yeah. I enjoyed it, but oh man, that was that was a big one. That that video, I, I could definitely feel like running away from me under my feet, and I only barely was able to kind of like lasso it into place by the time I got to the the end of page three on the script, and I'm like, nope, we're done, we're done. <laughs> this is where it ends. It really does feel like the entire mo that ties together all of the content on our channel is, all right, well, you need context to really get why this is cool. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the mo behind the trope talks. It's the mo behind the history of videos and most of the myths. It's everywhere uh, yeah. because that's the that's the thing about all the stuff we study. We know it's cool, but it's really hard to convince people outside why it's cool. So there needs to be mm -hmm. just enough context to be like, no, no, you don't understand. This is actually very notable because of like, you know, 500 years of other stuff. But uh, trust me, this is going to be good. <laughs> it's going to be worth it. And striking that balance to like keep an audience not bored is uh, it's the razor thin line that we walk every day. Yeah. So I, I'll actually turn this over to, to you, Garrett, because you had mentioned that you had a course in Rome essentially doing um, kind of a, a survey of a bunch of different pieces of important um, art and architecture throughout the history, like digging through the sources and going back and like, okay, this was this and this was this. What was that like? Did you kind of feel yourself like going through different eras in in terms of the city or like, oh, this is you know, like total Flavian move right here with uh, <laughs> like a different language of, of propaganda versus like the Colosseum and Augustus's mm -hmm. stuff? What's what's you, you've spent a lot more time in, in Rome itself than I have. How do you like get the feel of, of all that stuff when you're there? It's it's overwhelming. You know, Rome is the the world's most visible palimpsest in terms of you know ruins, remains, Renaissance on top of ancient, on top of you know Etruscan yeah. on top of whatever else. Um, and the course I did, so I spent part of my junior year as an undergrad um, in Rome, had a great time um, with a course that was called the Ancient City. And so we spent two days every week just kind of exploring the ruins. You know, we, we'd have, of course, you know, readings, we'd do a bunch of background stuff on it. We'd go in and um, we'd have lectures on site. So like at the Arapacus, for example, we'd go there. It's like, okay, here's why this might be Tellus. Here's why it probably isn't. Here's why this is Agrippa. Here's why it probably isn't. And so yeah. all of the, uh, the ambiguities inherent in these grand programs were kind of explained on site, which made it both more baffling and more intriguing. Yeah. Um, 
so, so yeah, Rome is, again, it's the best place to go to just drown in history. So you, you step in, it's just like, oh, I'm still falling. There's more and there's more and there's more. Um, and yeah, even, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, even with everything that's, you know, that's been ruined or paved over over the, the, the course of millennia, it's still just the volume is baffling. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, the first time I went, I, I kind of knew some stuff about Italy, not a lot. Second time I went, I knew more. And now I'm like, okay, well, this time I'll actually kind of know what I'm talking about. And I feel like I will never actually know enough to be able to go there and have a sense that I understand what I'm looking at because there is so much and it's so varied and it's so like layers and layers and layers mm-hmm. that it's, it is truly overwhelming. I've, I've heard some people say that like whether you like the the national monument, the, the wedding cake, um, oh, yeah. it's called, or whether you like it or hate it, it is very much the the feeling of an old style roman monument where it's just mm-hmm. it's so big it is incomprehensibly grand and it's just so in your face <laughs> oh yeah yeah the romans weren't big on taste so much but they were big <laughs> on lots of marble yeah. and plenty of guilt and then just like hey you don't like that get out of the empire hey everything uh, goes together if everything looks the same <laughs> exactly right yeah, you know yeah. it's not, it's not yeah. my problem it's your problem yeah. um yeah. and um yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, I haven't gotten a handle on it yet, and I, sh- I should know what I'm doing at this point after all those, you know, desperate <laughs> years of grad school, right? Uh, but, um, you know, e- even, you know, just for the sheer scale of the ancient city, you know, there's, you may have seen it before, there's this, on the outskirts of the old city, a place called uh, Monte Testaccio. It's about a 150-foot okay. high mound. It's all overgrown. And it's just the remains of amphorae that were stacked year after year uh, coming from Spain. Millions and millions of amphorae smashed and put in a giant heap by traders who couldn't reuse, they couldn't reuse the uh, terracotta, I guess, the oil would soak into it, so they just smash them oh, and put them yeah. in a giant heap. And so it's this industrial-sized dump on the, on, the, on the outskirts of Rome that's the size of a small mouse, of a large hill, just sitting there. Um, it, it means, you know, it's Pottery Mountain, pretty much, Monte Testaccio. Um, and so it's, uh, just again, for the sheer scale of the ancient city, you know, that always impressed me even more than just the endless stacked columns and, like, you know, the, the gnawed-away remains of the Colosseum. Just, there, there is so much. And Practical uh, question. Can you mm-hmm. dig into this mound and retrieve bits of pottery and either sell them to tourists or reassemble the pots? <laughs> it's, I, mean, I mean, if it's there and nobody's using it. Well, you'd be amazed how cheap Roman pottery is. Like, you know, it's I would everywhere. be amazed. That feels wrong. Yeah, so like, like you, you don't want to do this. I mean, yeah, first of all, it wouldn't be very fun to dig through. It's like, oh, look, I just got another cut from a giant piece of pottery. Oh, uh, but it, it's, it's more the... Actually, I was telling this story on actually a different podcast. Um, I was walking once in the field in Turkey, and every footstep was just crunching. And I looked down to see why, and it was just endless fragments of Roman roof tiles and pottery. And that was the ground. Oh. You couldn't even see soil. Oh, that hurts um, me. But I understand so, why. It's like there's too much of it. You know? Yeah, I mean, it, it just every, it, it's ancient plastic. You, you can't get rid of the stuff. Yeah. Maybe um, this is because I live in America, and mm-hmm. uh, I am very not accustomed to there being layers and layers of known <laughs> history everywhere I go. Uh like, obviously, America has been populated for a very long time, but as part of the colonial effort, there was, like, a concerted effort to sort of sweep all that under the rug and be like, oh, it was untamed nature before we got here, just miles of forests and deer and <laughs> nobody else. Uh, so, like, you don't you don't find anything. Like, you dig and you hit bedrock before you hit anything mm-hmm. that's, like, stuff. And a lot of the, even a lot of the, like, ruins are kind of like, oh, that hill wasn't always a hill. Someone built something and, and now it's it's, like, covered in dirt and now it's mm-hmm. part of the landscape you just don't get you know a thousand years ago somebody handcrafted something 
and the building eventually fell down and then now there's dirt on it and now we built more buildings on that. You don't mm -hmm. get yeah. that in most of the places in the U.S. and it's just weird to me. And uh, Garrett, there's another one of your videos about, you know, why is Rome buried where sometimes mm -hmm. a building collapses and some dirt just kind of starts growing over it and now that's a hill. It was exactly. a whole ass building and now it's just a mound. Well, there's that it, thing it, about that like mosaic they found under like a, a field in a farm. It's just like a mosaic that used time. to be a floor. Yeah, yeah, really? all the time. <laughs> sure, yeah. In Europe, yeah. There was some dirt on my floor. I guess it's been reclaimed by nature. <laughs> Oopsies. Yeah, well, let's, let's pack it up here. Our job is done. I didn't vacuum, um, so I guess it belongs to Gaia again. Let's get out of well, here. Know, but like, like Rome being at its height a city of anywhere between 500,000 and a million people, depending on whose estimates you believe. And then by like the six or 700, it was down to, you know, like 20,000, 30,000, 50,000. Mm -hmm. That one week in like 543 population yeah, zero after nobody. the Visigoths yeah, right. kicked them out. <laughs> um, yeah, literally abandoned for a couple months. Mm -hmm. um, but like when, when the population retracts that much, there's just so much stuff that's going to be unused. And even a couple generations, like Red, you joke, but like, yeah, it's like that's Gaia's now. No one's using that house because mm -hmm. they're not enough people to need that house. So, and then a hundred years later, when it's like, oh, we could actually use that house. It's like, oh, there's just dirt on the floor. Okay, weird, <laughs> yeah. whatever. And then you wouldn't even think to dig down. You know, the, the, even in the Renaissance, you know, there was the, they called the the disabitato, the uninhabited part of Rome inside the old walls, and what? that was three quarters of the city. It was just so there was what? that little corner opposite the Vatican, pretty much, that was built up. And the rest is just kind of villas, you know, vineyards, and just rolling hills on top of collapsed buildings. Oh my God, uh, that's even so even now, like by, kind of by the Pantheon, there are noticeable hills in the street that are going over large buried ancient buildings that have just been submerged by both flood silt and their own their own debris. Yeah. Um, you know, 20, 30 feet down. Is it yeah, insensitive Pantheon... to say, wow, Detroit is older than I thought? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you, you can see it in Detroit. Um, I, I worked yeah. there for a while. Um, oh, really? Well, you go like, on the roof of like an abandoned building, and you see these tr the roof trees, you know, growing up along the, the edges of the, 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 the eaves yeah. in windblown dust. That's the beginning of Gaia reclaiming her own. Yeah. Um, What's interesting but, is I, I take a lot of trains and trains tend to cut through more unused parts of cities. So I mm -hmm. see a lot of the sort of back end. And it's like, that's just a whole like half a warehouse because the rest of it was burned down a while ago, it looks like. And nobody's done anything about it. So, mm -hmm. OK, then. So I remember yeah. at one point I took a train through West Virginia and it was just like it was all that the whole way through. And I was also very grumpy, so it didn't exactly put me in a great mood. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just interesting, I guess. Uh from and I, I mean, this is just me really showing my lack of historical context, but I'm very used to thriving and built up cities where the problem is that there's not enough space for all the new stuff rather than there's so much old stuff that's just kind of falling over because nobody's nobody wants to do anything with it. That's unheard of to me. So <laughs> it's just wild. You know, we think of Rome. Well, I think of Rome in its height or the stereotype of its height. But it did fall, and it didn't really fall in a day either. It kind of slowly shrank. Slow. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's that's the script I'm writing right now, actually. Ooh, uh, oh, slight yeah. spoilers. Um, Spoiler but alert. yeah, I was gonna mention the, the the Pantheon used to be like, and Garrett, you can correct me, like 15 feet. Like the entrance was 15 feet mm -hmm. submerged. 
um, in the Renaissance. They had a staircase leading down. Like now you look at it, it's at street level. That was not mm-hmm. street level. <laughs> so and it used to be raised on a pedestal. Um, exactly. In the ancient day. Yeah. So absolutely wild. But one of the things I did want to mention specifically on the, the, the subject of like Augustan propaganda specifically, because that was kind of the through line. And I tried to like every time I said like, this is really cool. I like made a point to undercut myself and say, and this is propaganda <laughs> used to justify a political regime <laughs> at, at various people's expense. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's very easy to say, you know, Rome before Augustus, not a fun place to live. Rome after Augustus, maybe a better place to live can't necessarily make that judgment from from our perspective but it's like yeah, that's the sense you get that's the sense that augustus as historians would like you to have um, whether or not it is true that is what they said at least but the amount of of comments not a lot but not zero of like i think we're being too harsh on the ancient world we shouldn't hold them to our standards it's like the reason that we need to established like things that were cool about the ancient world and things that were bad is because then in say the late 1930s people will be like hey Mm -hmm. these things about the ancient worlds that were the bad parts no those were the features the oppression of of people outside of the city of rome who can do things for us through their labor and like exploitation calling that a feature and then say colonizing libya and ethiopia um well not colonizing but occupying ethiopia is like yay we did it that's the good thing and then maybe say like 70 years later you have political parties that are like that mussolini guy wasn't all that bad it's like Mm. this is why we need to talk about this kind of stuff because (laughs) if you say we can't hold history to current standards Historical standards are used as precedent to try and reshape current standards. Yep. Also, mm-hmm. as a side note, the, the adage that history is written by the victors isn't strictly true, but history is written by a much reduced subset of people. And that subset of people writing history kind of gets to say what we think the standards of the day were. But if you look back in the right places, you will find that pretty much at all points in history, there have been people advocating for what we consider modern standards like hey maybe enslaving people is bad hey maybe people should have bodily autonomy maybe we shouldn't just keep conquering people maybe that's bad actually there this argument is ongoing it's just you know the people who bulldoze over don't tend to write down and a lot of people were complaining and saying (laughs) "Ooh, this is immoral or whatever like no they're gonna be like and our glorious regime was the greatest look at all these cool buildings we built and everybody was super happy to see us and we're great and everyone loves being roman like yeah forget the skeletons we built this on the one quarter of the population that was enslaved (laughs) i I swear there's nothing that will make me dismiss you faster than we can't hold old stuff to the standards (laughs) of new stuff why can't we use our current knowledge why, why why are you limiting yourself like that? Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> I'm yeah. preaching to the choir here. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ugh. You guys yeah. need to be convinced that people should be studying history. <laughs> yeah, that, that ship has sailed. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're in too deep. Whatever exactly. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, so that was that was my nonsense for, for the past week. I, I had a good time with that one. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, it's it's always a treat to talk about architecture. Of course, I, oh, yeah. I'm getting I'm getting pegged as as uh, uh, an architecture bitch, <laughs> phrasing, and phrasing. it's not it's not wrong. Uh, no, I'm you know given the context of what I just said, I'll I'll let that one stand. <laughs> Perfect, um, fantastic, own it. All right, but, anyway, uh, let's let's transition on for for more Rome. You can never escape red. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Shay, all, all roads lead to Rome, I guess. Yeah, yeah, hey, right. We're, we're anyway. stuck in. So, uh, Garrett, um, what would you like to tell us about either one of your most recent videos, um, either something you've got coming mm-hmm. up, um, 
What do you want to chat about? You got a captive audience. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Dangerous place. I used to lecture, of course, college students. So this oh, no. Is a, this is a comfortable space for me. <laughs> now, now, anyway. Um, so my, my last video um, was all about the usually messy deaths of the Roman emperors. And I kind of ran the stats on this, which ended up being a both very difficult and very intriguing exercise. So I began with the question, how long did the average emperor live? And the answer, in case you're wondering, is about 51 years, which is Ooh. pretty impressive for the ancient world. Actually, about average for a male who yeah. lives through childhood and diseases that claim so many uh, before right. adolescence. Yeah. Um, the reason is that most of those who make it to become emperor become emperor in their maturity, once they're past you know, the, the gauntlet of diseases, and then get assassinated. Uh, <laughs> so you know, uh, about 40%, about it turns out, were assassinated, murdered, otherwise killed. Um, three, that is lower fact, than I expected, admittedly. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. of course, those are pretty spectacular. So, you know, they kind of overshadow the rest. But um, in fact, three in bathtubs or in baths, rather. That, that was a surprising fact. Or, Actually, sorry, that makes sense. Yeah. Commodus was around. one. I don't know who the other two are off the top of my heads. It's like if well, you're going to kill someone, you're going to pick a time where they are defenseless and probably unarmed and mm -hmm. unguarded. So that does actually, that tracks. If anything, I'm surprised that's not higher. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. yeah so like, like, like Thomas, like you said, is strangled kind of like in his palace bath. Um, another guy is just kind of drowned by his wife's minions as he's laying in the bathtub. Oh. <laughs> uh, an empress is suffocated by having the doors slam shut on the bath and they crank the heat up and then she just, you know, dies of dehydration. Jesus. And uh, one guy is actually brained with a bath bucket. They have like a, in, in the oh sauna, they have like a wooden bucket and they just knock him over the head with it. Wow. But, um, that one doesn't but, feel particularly premeditated. No, no. It's like, well, we've got a bucket. And so, so anyway. Um, it, Weapon it, it and was, clean up in one convenient package. It, I guess, right? You know? So anyway, obviously these are fun tidbits, but you know, for the actual historian part of me that's supposed to be doing things with history in these videos, um, you know, thinking about these patterns of career patterns, emperors become emperor when they're mature, almost always. There's very few real successions from father to son, um, even in the more stable parts of the of the imperial of imperial history. Hmm. Um, you know, Romans the Romans never really admit that their emperors are monarchs, and so they never quite develop a clear plan of succession from father to son. You know, some emperors try, like Marcus Aurelius to Commodus, with in that case disastrous results. Um, but typically, you know, it's the emperor might either appoint somebody or is displaced, um, even when there's a dynasty, you know, that's been going for some time. Um, and so that this, both the assassinations and the uh, emperors coming to power later reflect this pattern. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so that, that was fun. It's fascinating. I, a long time ago, I'd done a Twitter thread for funsies of if... Like, if the Roman Empire speeds up every time someone is killed, when does it end? <laughs> so my, my I used doubling, which was, was unfairly quick. Um, mm -hmm. But with a metric of doubling, starting with... Um, Starting with Augustus, so Caesar doesn't count. We don't start off at double speed. Mm -hmm. um, I think the empire ends in like like 67 or 69 AD um, because <laughs> the year nice. of the four emperors, like, boom, it's basically over exactly, after that. Right, yeah. um, so it's like, oh, my God. And then, you know, even though there's like 400 years before the fall of the West, forgetting the Byzantines entirely, it mm -hmm. like that that elapses within like a year once you have that many multipliers on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. No, it, it's fantastic. Um and just, you know, kind of in sense of what, what's planned. So the, the next Ordinary Toadstone video is going to be on the very basic question that I see asked all the time, which is why are so many statues missing their noses? Greek Roman Ooh. statues. 
you know, and, and the actual answer is very boring. They fell on their faces and the yeah. nose broke off. That, that's pretty <laughs> oh, much it. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's but, right. you know, but it's a chance to talk about statues in general, about how this is just a, an ubiquitous part of life. You know, to a degree, it's hard for us to imagine sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, Rome has literally tens of thousands of statues and they're just everywhere. You're tripping over these things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so thinking about the many roles that they played, you know, commemorative, religious, whatever else. And then finally coming back to why so many are gone. You know, they're melted down if they're bronze, they're... Uh, yeah. smashed up to make lime if they're marble. Yeah. Um, and so that was a, that all was a of huge this... industry in the oh, medieval yeah. period where they were like, okay, mm-hmm. well, the only thing we can make is is lime for plaster. So let's get those statues like, well, and smash them yeah, up. Like, yeah, let's take care of this. Pain. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a great story too. I'm sure you've read it before. Um, so with the, the God, when the uh, Rome is being besieged by the barbarians in the sixth century and Belisarius and his men have, are holding it. They pull down all the huge statues from Hadrian's mausoleum and toss them down to the barbarians. So they smash oh, the siege God. ladders with these, you I, know, four ton statues. Oh my God. I, I think a, I had repressed that because it was sad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, effective, say what you will. You got, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, a, a colossal statue coming down on you, that'll probably, you know, knock you off your ladder pretty effectively, but yeah. not great for our history. I have a um, question. Uh, if uh, mostly the noses fell off because the, the statues, like, fell on their face, and, of course, the nose is fragile, the Sphinx, uh, mm-hmm. what's the deal there? I feel like that didn't tip over. <laughs> no, so from what I've read, and it might not be correct, uh, in the 14th century, a very zealous Sufi with an iron bar went out there to knock the nose off because he thought it was wow. idolatrous. Um, but it was probably oh. damaged before that. Um, you know, the, the early Christians in Egypt um, were not known for being too kind to statues. All right. um, so, and that was another thing that, of course, some of these arts smashed deliberately. In Egypt in particular, there's this idea that the spirit inside a statue breathes through the nose. And if oh. you smash the nose, it kills the statue. Oh, wow. Um, That's and so wild. That, that may have been a motivation, um, and at least oh in Egypt. Gosh. But elsewhere, okay. they just kind of, they got knocked over in an earthquake and the nose fell off. So, gotcha. You know, it's, I read uh, a lot of Asterix comics as a youth, ah, where the running yes. gag of the person trying mm-hmm. to chisel the Sphinx and accidentally knocking the nose <laughs> off. So that, exactly. I think, rather colored in my head um, <laughs> the way it must have happened. But that's really yeah, interesting. Right. Yeah, there's, oh, yeah. On the subject of... Um, of stuff getting destroyed uh there's a longer story about again uh italians in the the such and such century uh where that one guy used the the kushite pyramids of Meroe as target practice for his mm-hmm. cannons and basically destroyed them all in one go oh, shit like yeah. that yeah uh <laughs> sorry oh. that just came to mind in a flash of, of pain and i needed to <laughs> to expel oh, yeah, it from it's... from my head the um, balance yeah, between I, i'm very We've excited to hear pots. about the statues mm-hmm. <laughs> right yeah uh, but, but yeah, so again, the, the punchline is pretty straightforward, but the, hopefully the video itself is more inter- more engaging than just like, well, they fell and the nose fell off. Um, well, I mean, even insofar as like, you know, we have the stories of like, here's a here's a myth that existed for, you know, 20 seconds before this guy told it, maybe, uh, whether mm-hmm. he invented it or whether it was real. And it's like, where's the context go to? That's it. Even like unpacking the roots to the seemingly simple answer can end up being extremely fascinating and Cleo is is currently like right up in front of everything giving me a very hard time right now I've been um, trying to be just... so cool about it but she's just chilling she's, yeah, she's just going vibing. for it yeah uh, I'm I'm very excited to see that one uh, that should be that oh, should be well, a fun well thank one. you yeah that should be a yeah. fun one to make too hopefully and speaking and then, of um, uh I believe we've just entered the plugs part of the podcast so where can mm-hmm. people watch this upcoming video <laughs> well I'm so glad you asked uh-huh. um and, and that is on uh told in stone is my YouTube channel um, and uh, I have a book as well, which I plug relentlessly. So if you watch a single video through, you'll see that. But just to head that off at the pass, that is uh, Naked Statues, Fat Gladiators, and War Elephants. 
Uh, and it answers um, a series of frequently asked questions about the Greeks and Romans, such as um, why are the statues naked? You know, they or you know, were gladiators actually fat and so forth? Um, so you know, fun things like that. So if that intrigues you, um, feel free to check it out. At least in the Amazon preview, <laughs> and uh, hopefully, be disappointed. It's also but, very uh, good as you. an audiobook, which is how I got it. I, I was able ah. to to uh, entertain myself for a month of commuting with that, and I, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> I would eventually like get somewhere, and I'd park, and I'm like, well, this chapter's not done. Hold on. <laughs> Listen through to the end of it. Everyone, go uh, go go read uh, Garrett's book instead, and then read the Aeneid when you're done instead <laughs> and of And support Dune, your local Dune's library. Whatever. Yeah. That's right, yeah. But seriously, but, uh, book yeah. first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, that one first. And then the library. Uh, you have library. to get it on your Then the library, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, with that, uh, assuming there is nothing else that we need to plug, we can hop on over to the Q&A portion of the podcast. Heck yeah. Mm-hmm. Hello and welcome to the Q&A portion of the Overly Sarcastic Podcast, where we answer your questions from Ask OS Pod on Discord. This first question comes from one of our lovely patrons. If you'd like to support the channel, support the podcast, consider becoming a patron for a chance to have your question read first on a future episode. This question comes from Myth. Red and blue, in your research of mythology and history, are there a few sites or sources that you've bookmarked as super trustworthy or super untrustworthy? Um, So, you know, you guys do a lot of research, and Garrett, I imagine you do quite as well. Is there any uh, go-to sources that you guys have when you're going through that process? Uh, I think it's Tufts has an online repository of a ton of Greek literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Perseus. Perseus. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that tends to be my go-to. Uh, if it's not a book that I can find on Project Gutenberg, uh, I tend to go there for Greek mythology especially. Uh, the problem I have with it is that it's too comprehensive and about half the results are just fully in ancient Greek. And I'm just like, <laughs> okay, do you have this in like ignorant pleb speak? Thank you. Yeah, this one okay. hasn't been localized yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, that one's just really solid because it's just all primary sources. And when I yeah. do my research, I tend to stick to primary sources if I can. Uh, which means, among other things, I don't really have go-to websites except for primary source aggregators like Project Gutenberg and Perseus and uh, um, occasionally archive.org, which has copies mm-hmm. of a lot of classic books. So if on the on the rare occasions that I pull up secondary sources, especially about like the God deep dives where it really behooves me to like look up the more recent scholarship about this, uh, then oftentimes you can find books there. And if they're not just available to read, you can like borrow them for a certain amount of time. Uh, I haven't bookmarked any sites as notably untrustworthy because I mistrust all websites on principle. Uh, I tell you, nothing is more disheartening than when I'm trying to find like visuals for any video about Norse mythology. And I'm like, that looks cool. And it's like, trad white power the blog and i'm just like okay mm, <laughs> every fucking yeah. time uh so i just tend to not trust anything that isn't a primary source and i, I even kind of look askance at secondary sources which is why it terrifies me when people are like can i cite your video in my paper it's like no you may not <laughs> what are you talking about read a book i'm here yeah. for fun <laughs> anyway yeah. um but yeah that that's basically me covered perseus tufts project gutenberg archive, uh, archive.org so just if I can kick in really briefly, I mean, absolutely, those are wonderful sites. And there's a, a site called Theoi for Greek mythology. Oh, and yeah. if you've ever used that one, mm-hmm. that one's that pretty one, good. It's pretty They're, good. Uh, I, at least I, for I, ancient sources. But. Yeah, it, it's pretty good for the sources. It Like most wikis, the actual text of it can't always be trusted, but it is good for oh, getting yeah, yeah, that, other that citations. Part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But uh, sometimes, actually, Theoi has copies of primary sources that you can also mm-hmm. find, Perseus, Gutenberg, stuff like that. Right, so those right. are pretty good. 
but it's a little bit it, it's it's a little shaky. I've run into some mm. misinformation on there just enough that in my head there's like a little red flag next to it that's like, it's eh, don't cite this directly. Find a secondary source or yeah. like a find mm. a second opinion about whatever you get from here. Go to a secondary location. Uh, <laughs> no, no, secondary location supplies. is bad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm trying to think. Uh, I mean, for mythology, I, I don't. But um, for for history, especially for literature, I think I've mentioned this before. But my favorite strategy is like if I'm ever doing like a history makers, I will take like the book, the text that I'm reading, and go through the introduction section, because like you know, in college and high school, we're so you know used to just like skip that nonsense, get to the text that I have to read tonight in like five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for instance, if I'm if I'm researching Virgil and I pull up this this Loeb edition that has a nice like you know eight page little quick intro on Virgil, that's not going to be everything I need, but that's going to be a big help to get me started. Um, mm-hmm. And it's usually you know it's it's published. It's sometimes the same people who do the translation. Sometimes it's different. Either way, you can kind of back search and find like, oh, these people are usually like scholars at universities. Great. Um, and they're usually well enough up to date that it's it's a very good uh, place to jump off of. That's um, not a website, but like, you know, if you have a text that you're reading through, whether it's a history or a literature or whatever else or a mythology book, um, like, you know, a copy of the Iliad and the Odyssey and it comes with an introduction, read the introduction. Odds are it's going to be better than whatever nonsense you can find online. <laughs> I actually just thought of a, a site that, Blue, you and I have agreed on that uh, is very annoying, and it's Tumblr. <laughs> Tumblr, God Anytime there's Tumblr. a post on Tumblr <laughs> that's like, here's a thing about mythology, or here's a fun <laughs> real fact about history, every mm. time I'm like, this is funny, and I send it to Blue, and you're like, oh my God, this again. Oh, the misinformation boils my blood. And I'm like, yeah, one, it's pretty dumb. The one that That's... I think of every time is the the one where they were trying to explain that uh, Eratosthenes, like, figured out the circumference of the Earth uh, mm-hmm. when he was working in the Library of Alexandria or, like, somewhere near it in, in the Hellenistic period. And they're like, Eratosthenes in 3076 BC, I'm like, what the hell button on your calculator did you accidentally click to come up with 3076 BC pre-bronze age god and it's it's like it's a dumb mistake but it's like if that's the thing Mm -hmm. that like and this is the first line of the post I'm I'm, I'm bashing on this post in particular but like this Mm -hmm. is the kind of thing where it's like even if the nugget of information in those posts points to something correct it is wrapped in so much fat nonsense that it's almost always more wrong than correct the uh the most God, dangerous Tumblr. reflex sorry in, no I, I brought it up i poked the button i knew it was going to set you up the most dangerous reflex in any research endeavor is that doesn't sound right but i don't know enough to dispute it because oh you know that that could happen that could make sense those are the things that can make something kind of stick in your head as yeah that's probably true and uh there are so many things that could happen and could make sense that didn't and don't. Uh, and the problem is if you see it framed in a fun, like, paragraph by paragraph, oh, this is a cool thing, this is a cool thing, it's like, that would be a cool thing, were it true. And uh, that's that's the that's the big issue. Lest we all forget, Tumblr is the birthplace of Mesperian, the daughter of Hades oh, and Persephone, yeah. the <laughs> goddess of, of, like, beauty and also the dead or something with, like, a yeah, hell-style oh. fucked-up half-face. And people... I. I feel so sorry for the people in the comments of some of my videos who are like, when are you going to do a video about Miss Barry? And she's so cool and I never hear about her. And it's like, sweetheart, there is a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> she's not it's like real. Mythologies are living things. Mythologies are no longer living things when everyone who originally worshipped them died mm. <laughs> or converted to yeah. Catholicism. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, the one place 
we never, ever, ever source things from is Tumblr.com. Yeah. <laughs> so. One, like, tangential to the to the question, it's not a website, but one thing that I've actually found, like, weirdly dangerous is stuff you hear from tour guides in places. Ooh. Because tour guides have kind of a habit of making shit up. And, <laughs> oh, no! you know, most of the time you will get about like 80% good, well enough sourced stuff. But tour guides who cater to broad audiences of people who would normally be bored to hear this kind of stuff tends to make things up. Um, so Garrett, I know you have some experience with Ephesus in particular. There's a fairly common mm. myth that there was a tunnel between the great library of Ephesus, uh, the library of, of Celsius, or I, I forgot what the guy's okay, name Celsus, exactly. Celsius, uh-huh. Celsius. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Celsius is not correct. Yeah, library of Celsius and the brothel across the street so mm-hmm. that uh, men could tell their wives, oh honey, I'm going to the library, but they'd actually go <laughs> under the tunnel and go to the brothel. Uh-huh. Never mind the fact that everyone in Greece and Rome was completely like unconcerned about like the 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 mores and the 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 taboo of sex. Like if people were gonna bang, they were gonna they might as well do it in the street. Jesus Christ! Like they did not care. <laughs> or the library, or the library. Like they would fuck in the library. They they're not above that. But like th- there's also no tunnel. Why would you need a tunnel? Just go to the library. And then yeah. go to the brothel afterwards. So it's like, this is the kind of stuff that like people came into my comment section when I made the video about like cities of the Roman world. And I talked about mm-hmm. the beautiful library of Ephesus and they're like, oh, there was a tunnel. It's like, no, there wasn't. <laughs> Tour guys just tell that shit because it's funny. You know that Nick Offerman meme? I know more than okay, you. So. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah. I, I, I shouldn't speak too aggressively and too loudly in the presence of someone who knows so much more about Ephesus than I do. But that was the one that I was like, oh my gosh, you guys don't, don't come with this stuff. This is bad. <laughs> oh, it, it uh-huh. is. And, and the thing is, it's been going on since antiquity. Like Herodotus famously yeah. had some bad tour guides in Egypt and then has <laughs> reproduced this stuff in his second book about Egypt yeah. oh, and his man. histories. Now he's have all these ridiculous myths. It's, um, a, it's a problem because if you can't trust the primary sources, who exactly, can you trust? Exactly, Herodotus himself mm-hmm. is just a dumb yeah. tourist. In a certain Whenever point. I reference Pausanias, I'm always like, please don't fuck me on this man. <laughs> yeah. He's pretty good usually. He's yeah. pretty Herodotus, good. usually, but you know. Yeah. He's yeah. also just like, yeah. I, every yeah. once in a while I see someone who's like, yeah, you know, Thucydides is very, you know, he's very cagey about his analytical process and he doesn't tell us what he's thinking and he presents it as true. Unlike Herodotus who tells us everything, I'm like, how, yeah. in what universe are you saying Herodotus is more trustworthy than Thucydides? Oh my God. Uh, he's just got one of them <laughs> yeah. faces. Exactly. Oh, God. Well, kind of related All right, well, this, this is a rabbit hole and a half. Yeah, we've yeah. got a, a next question here from Emmy God. Rose. To all, if you could pull one prank on a historical figure of your choosing, who would it be and what prank would you pull? Since we've already kind of started the historical figure train, who do you want to prank? I think, here's the thing, initially, I thought Thomas Edison, because he's a prick and would be funny. <laughs> yeah. But I think in terms of easiness, Arthur Conan Doyle. Because that <laughs> gullible motherfucker <laughs> believed anything. Oh, yeah. And it was very fun. I just think <laughs> yeah. how much we could shape the modern world just by planting an idea in his head. Because he believed that, like, paper cutout fairy prank. Uh, mm. And he was convinced that Houdini was doing actual magic to the point where Houdini had to be like, no, man, I'm just a really good escape artist. And Doyle didn't believe him. <laughs> so <laughs> it would be trivial to, to trick the inventor of the greatest detective in the world to believe something patently false. And I just think that would be very I funny. Feel like that has to be like a like his gullibility and the cleverness of the Sherlock Holmes stories is directly proportional. Like as one goes down, <laughs> the other goes up. 
<laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's like the say bargain he made in order to write some of the most <laughs> iconic. It's the bargain he made with those paper fairies. Exactly yeah. right. <laughs> you know, thinking about Herodotus, I think the temptation would be just to feed him just ridiculous stuff and then come oh, back yeah. 25 centuries in the future and see if what you told him made it into the source. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. So, yeah. It's just lizards up, uh, up in like Central Asia. That's it. Just yeah, giant these, lizards. These huge ants. They eat gold. Oh man! It's oh it's, yeah, yeah, right. That's already everything. Yeah, the, the giant ants, right? It's, oh yeah. man! Oh, that's a classic. Yeah. Um, I I would. This is a long con, but I would basically follow Caesar around all the time and prophesy his doom on random like festival days for years, years. And then I'd like go away for like like a couple months, like like beginning of 44 BC. Like I I I, I don't I I'm, I'm I'm gone. And then like he lets his guard down for a while, and then some other guy is like Caesar, beware the eyes. He's gonna be like, oh fucking another guy, great, screw you, pal. And then he goes and gets killed. That's I think my it con. only works yeah. if you keep swapping out disguises, like Groucho yeah. glasses, a wig, different colored mm-hmm. togas. Uh, yeah. And when this other guy pops up, it's like I know it's you, you fucker. <laughs> so. Even the fact that I believe in the play, it's his wife who prophesies his doom. I don't think that a lot of uh, people prophesy yeah, his doom. Oh, yeah, I forgot, left yeah. and right, it's so everywhere. Like seven different yeah. people were like, "Where are the odds?" And he's like, "Ah, yeah, pull the other one's got bells on." Exactly. Because right. the only person stupider than Caesar in the play, Julius Caesar, is the uh, Tudor uh, Elizabethan English film going or play going audience um so he really needs to hammer it home for them (laughs) so that they know caesar's screwed (laughs) foreshadowing i think that more shakespeare plays need like a chorus to just occasionally pause the play go up to the audience and be like now in case you're confused that guy killed that guy and this guy's mad about it and carry on. <laughs> yeah. 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 Or the dance, dude. The kind yeah. of point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Put a little pause <laughs> yeah, in front of Hamlet and then go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, that's mine. I'm going to I'm gonna prank Caesar. Incredible. <laughs> kind of in the same vein of the that's long... Good. Like, we're talking about, like, the long con now. It's not just, like, a one prank and done situation. I was thinking about, like, what historical figure not only would I like to prank, but also that I think would, like, take it well, you know? <laughs> um, and I do think getting into, like, a prank war with, like, Benjamin Franklin might be fun. Mm. You know? But, like, a very classic, like, whoopee cushion on the chair level. Like, mm-hmm. it just yeah. starts out very simple. It's, we're going by the book, and by the end, it's getting much more creative. Uh, I feel like that's <laughs> an arc that could be fun. That's He's a just fun doing one. it in the background of yeah. all of his other... Uh, maybe the Philadelphia is popping out, and you'd be like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you formulated this, like, very wholesome sort of, like, mm-hmm. prank warfare with a founding father, <laughs> whereas I was like, who do I want to make suffer? That's but the I thing. Can't That's the two directions of this question, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, do you want to ruin someone's day, or do you want to have, like, a really good time? <laughs> I feel like a time travel already pranked my other candidate, Robert Moses, uh, by writing the power broker while he was still alive. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, get wrecked. Your legacy's in tatters and you live to see it. Oh, anyway. So, yeah, that was a fun one. I like that question. That was a good one. Uh, Imagine, like... Like mm-hmm. um, Franklin like gets the whoopee cushion on the chair. He's like, "Oh well, this you see is war." <laughs> 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 Goes over to his study and starts exactly. to come up. It, with this, this is a sitcom thing. episode, right there. Yeah. 
A yeah. house divided cannot me. stand, but it appears it also cannot sit. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> he just starts writing scathing poetry about you in the local newspaper. Yeah, right, yeah. 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 Poor Richard or whatever. Well, just think of how yeah. easily he could bring like a bucket on top of a door, you know? Like, I feel like mm-hmm. he's got the requisite skill set to really elevate some of these very basic pranks into like, next like He had gout, though. He'd involved, need to, like, somehow. he'd need to get a servant to do it. But other than that, it would totally work. Yeah. Right, right. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they could find one in the colonies. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, less wholesome. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. Well, this next question comes from Party One. To all, I've been reading through the Odyssey and noticed that pouring one out for the homies is a really old tradition we still use. What are some of your favorite old traditions that you still enjoy? Hmm. Eating the rich. Sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. I, I think that Tumblr question like unlocked part of my brain because it's just, I am. God. It's so oh, funny God. that people think I'm an angrier person than you are, just because when you get mad, it's a rare occasion, but the spikes are so much higher. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think, like, getting together with the bros around a campfire and just, oh, like, yeah, shit-talking for hours. Yeah. yeah, that one's always fun. Um, just a good, like, honestly, the... This is kind of a, a, I think, much too deep answer for this question, but I just love how deep in our bones storytelling is. Like, mm-hmm. what is observational comedy but not, like, the, the oldest form of human com- communication? Let me sit you down and tell you this crazy shit that happened to me, and maybe I'll accentuate little bits of it to make the story funnier because I just want to make you laugh, man. Like, I love that, and I feel very connected to it, obviously. Uh, and it's just cool to me that that seems to be one of the oldest things we've ever done, you know? Yeah. Bards and storytellers and 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 all that jazz. That's that's old shit. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about uh, you know libations, you know pouring one out. So I actually oh, once nice. did stage a full scale Greek symposium with some wow. of my family and friends. Um, it oh, wasn't great. So, cool. um, oh. <laughs> so we got we got like the the mixing bowl. We got a box a box of wine. We mixed it. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, you know we we, mm-hmm. we did all the, the drinking games and everything. And there was a train wreck, of course, because you know we <laughs> it, it was terrible wine. You know, and the game we weren't very good at the games, and all of our tunics got spattered with wine. Oh. But um, you kind of got the camaraderie. You can kind of sense the you know even at the distance of twenty five centuries. You know, it wasn't Aristotle. You know, it wasn't you know Plato symposium or anything, but it was still. I don't know, kind of the idea of getting around the wine bowl and discussing things. Yeah, I, I feel like you got the exact intended experience. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, it's true. Those are pretty sloppy, too, back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I think the common through line of a lot of this is, like, people enjoy spending time with and genuinely interacting and connecting with other humans. So any tradition yeah, that allows you to do good, that right? is yeah. probably going to carry on. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I do like um, the old tradition where the the cargos, where you know the, mm. the the wealthy people in the city would play to to kind of like or would 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 pay to subsidize the plays. There we go. Uh, <laughs> got a letter confused. Um, so it was this this like tradition and this custom of like expected philanthropy that if you are mm. of means, it is your civic responsibility to give that shit back to the people. I miss that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I also I'm, like that uh the the tradition of like scathing reviews of bad media oh, is hell old. Yeah. Because like, oh, what was this about? Uh I was I was looking into bathos, the origin of the term. Yeah. Uh and Blue, I sent you Just a few wrong. bits. Uh uh no, uh the use of bathos in its modern term. 
uh, originated in basically a scathing takedown of modern poetry uh, written in the style of an old uh, essay about pathos uh, where oh. there was a line in it that was yeah. misspelled to use pathos instead. So the the I believe the essay was... Uh, bathos and the art of sinking in poetry and it was just oh, this dude yes. yeah and it he's just mm-hmm. being scathing to all these modern poets and like I don't know who these poets are and he doesn't name drop any of them he does the like initial and then the dash mm-hmm. after it so I don't know who any of these people are but he's ripping them to shreds and it's very <laughs> funny because of course none of the bad poetry survived so you don't know who yeah. any of these are but you're reading through the like mm-hmm. excerpts of poetry and you're like oh yeah that metaphor really doesn't work yeah that really kind of undercuts <laughs> it's like oh this is a this is about the glory of God and it's comparing it to like a, a washing woman or something like that wringing something out and it's like what are you doing man and I'm like yes yes give it to me uh, so I, I love that um, scathing half star letterboxed reviews are like a, yeah. a tradition as old as humanity itself yeah so. kind of in the same vein like graffiti has been mm-hmm. kind of the same throughout all of history like blank oh, was yeah. here or just like tagging yeah. is basically just blank was here but with fancier lettering like I, I love that that has been so consistent people just are really want to make sure that this wall has a permanent marker of them and i think that that's so cool uh but the tradition kids that doodling I've never... on their homework yes, uh and, and kids complaining about their homework uh mm, where it's yeah. like i did this cross stitch and i hated every minute of it and it's like hell yeah girl yeah <laughs> speak your truth <laughs> Um, yeah. The one tradition that I've never had the opportunity to do, but I think is really fun, is whenever you break like a bottle of wine or something on a boat to like towards <laughs> main voyage. I've never yeah. had an instance where I've had access to a new boat and been the person designated to hit a bottle onto it. But oh, I right, think that'd yeah. be fun as hell. Okay, yeah. but like if you were that person, and then the boat sank, you'd on some level worry, right? That like, <laughs> did I like hit a rivet? Was that me? Does anyone know? I think it would haunt you. I think that would get to you. Whoever smashed the boat on the Titanic spent the entire rest of the decade like sweating bullets. <laughs> like they called it unsinkable, but there's some unforeseen alteration. It's just like, oh God. <laughs> this no is the unsinkable two. The unsinkable one burned down in dry dock. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. I imagine you wouldn't get many other subsequent opportunities to hit bottles right, of the boat. Right. So you better really relish yeah. the one that you got in that scenario. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like good stuff. Whew. Love a tradition. So this next question comes from Bimir Haig. He, mm-hmm. okay, uh, to oh. all with spooky season well underway. What Halloween classics do you find yourself going back to every year? I believe Red has talked about Over the Garden Wall, but are there any <gasps> other horror or spooky adjacent stories that get you guys in the spirit of the season? Thanks. Dread. You already took my number one answer. Over the Garden I mean, Wall. You can still it. Wall it's so good. It's good. I've been doing a, a sort of tradition since it came out of just rewatching it every Halloween. That's the exact right amount of time between watches because you remember the like the important bits, but every time you notice more stuff. Like I think I was three yeah. rewatches in before I was like, "There's a train whistle in the ending of every opening, and that means something." Um, <laughs> but when I was little, the thing I went back to every year was Scary Godmother, the comics, not the terrifying 3D animated not movie. Not the 3D animated movie that played on loop all season on what, like Cartoon Network. <laughs> No, it's a travesty because Jill Thompson's art style is incredibly beautiful and it has that sort of like loose watercolor look coupled with the really sharp corners and like twisty spirals like y'all know the like the um the uh Nightmare Before Christmas kind of Tim Burton mm-hmm. aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Jill Thompson does it better. So her art oh. is beautiful <laughs> and her comics are really good. Uh and it's just this incredibly whimsical kind of urban fantasy other world story that absolutely consumed my thoughts when I was little. And uh this is <laughs> We had copies of, like, all the early 
stories and I was so attached to them that I I remember that I did this. I like hid them somewhere for safekeeping and then forgot where in the house they were. So I don't know where they are. <laughs> I had to like reread oh, them no. online. So that's good job me. But uh, I, I, I straight up didn't find them again. I was like, I thought I hid them in my suitcase full of Halloween paraphernalia, but they are in here. So oh, no. yeah, so that was my cleverness. Uh, I love Halloween so much. So I have a lot of media associated with it. I mean, for what it's worth, I've always enjoyed the, the classic, you know, ghost stories. It was, uh, I think it's Arthur Mackins, the author. He did a lot of turn of the century stuff. Um, but he did some fantastic stories that he read very well today still. I, said, I can't remember the name. It's been years, but right. as it popped into my mind, for what it's worth. Teaching a story <laughs> <Yeah>. here, so. <laughs> no, no, that's good stuff, yeah. There's, like, yeah. there's that kind of prose, like, right around the turn of, like, the, the 1900s where, like, Everybody mm. was a really good writer, just <laughs> casually. It's like, man, yeah. I miss that. <laughs> yeah, I was Cicero bleeding through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, kind of same vein, Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes, bunch of like horror mm. short stories, like to go read one of those. Tis the season, right? But uh, otherwise, yeah. I feel like I like horror movies unseasonally, so specifically around Halloween, I'll go back to like some classic monster flicks, like Black and White, mm-hmm. Nosferatu, oh, Frankenstein, yeah. that stuff, to like really feel the season. Because that's the kind of like uh, Creative Commons, <laughs> no licensing stuff that you can put in the background of episodes of other stuff, so it feels seasonally <laughs> appropriate to watch it as though I am living in a different gotcha. movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course. I don't know if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whew. What do you what got, did, Blue? Yeah, what you got? Oh, I, over the garden wall. Yeah. Oh, yeah, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> nice, it's, nice. It's the best. It's just it's just yeah. Halloween Dante. It's perfect. It really <laughs> captures uh, a lot of what I love about the season uh, in that it is very cute and very whimsical and very autumnal and bone-wrenchingly horrifying the more you think about it. And I just love a good piece of media that can really pull off both sides of that coin. Hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, this next question comes from Loyalty Mealy. To more for Blue, but I'd love an answer from either or all three of you. Uh, what are your thoughts on historical accuracy in period dramas or films, and what do you think is a good balance between narrative and accuracy? Yeah, I'm curious we, we to unpack what that this. facial expression means. <laughs> yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit um, on the Assassin's Creed detailed diatribe that accuracy is sometimes a misleading metric where it's like if the events didn't happen to the letter it's inaccurate so like gladiator is Mm -hmm. inaccurate you know it didn't happen that way (laughs) but it is very authentic to the vibe and feeling and heightened aesthetics um and the general like the atmosphere uh, of 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 rome so even if it is not accurate it can still be authentic and those two i i find can can act independent of each other. So I I enjoy when things are are accurate. It makes my life easier. But I am always happy to settle for authentic. Um, so you know, people have I haven't seen Bridgerton, but um, <laughs> it is like a Regency drama yes. in a kind of like alternate world, and it has a lot of stuff that seems to be very authentic to the social dynamics of you know this this period in in history, without being like actually set in or following the real events of. So it's like that kind of stuff is cool. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the uh, the criticism that didn't happen is like the easiest thing you can levy at any sort of historical fiction because mm-hmm. by definition, that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in that it is historical fiction, therefore it is retelling something that 
did not happen by the nature of what fiction means. Uh, so I like I understand the appeal of that critique, but I feel like it gets a little overapplied because sometimes it's like, oh, well, you know, that's that's not how this specifically played out. And it's like, yeah, that's a little stupid. That's like the pretense of the story. You know, that's that's just suspension of disbelief at that point. But sometimes it's like, all right. I don't like that you're trying to justify that you included this weird or gross thing under the banner of it's authentic mm. when it isn't. Um, Much larger discussion about Kingdom Come Deliverance specifically. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah mm. it, uh, I'll save it for another time. It's There's right. something that's like, we can't include any minorities because that's inaccurate, mm, but no we'll do all this other gamey bullshit with literal magic. It's like, come on, guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or even when that argument gets applied to things that are blatantly fantastical, when people yeah. are like, the historical accuracy in mm -hmm. Game of Thrones, and it's like, the what? It's not <laughs> the real world. There's like... Did you miss the zombies and the dragons? And it's it's like, oh, well, they had to include all these incredibly graphic and gross things because that was authentic to the time period. And it's like, oh, yes, when dragons roamed the earth. <laughs> we all remember. Um, yeah. And I, I think there's a lot of dedication to the aesthetic of history without necessarily the authenticity of history. And, we, you know, we, we, we already had the detailed diatribe about this. So, you know, a lot of that's already been said. But I think it can be kind of fun to just sort of score points off of a piece of media, which is why I'm a little suspicious of the easy criticism. But sometimes it's like, no, that was stupid. And I don't like that you're pretending like that was historical when it wasn't. Mm. Like that's that's what makes it not work for me. It's like, if you're lying to me, I'm gonna get mad. But if you're just kind of letting the story stand, then I don't mind that so much. Yeah. Just to contribute very briefly, um, you know, I have my own much less fun podcast, you know, just the Told the Stone <laughs> podcast, right? Interview yeah. historians. And yeah. on one of these, I interviewed Brett Devereaux. And we we're talking oh, about yeah. um, the Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, these two fantastic universes that are both medieval to some degree. And Brett was saying that, you know, he appreciates um, Lord of the Rings so much more because Tolkien, as a medievalist, could make the world feel authentic and would make things like battles, for example, play out the way an actual battle would, even though it's orcs and, you know, trolls or whatever mm -hmm. on opposing sides, mm -hmm. where George R. R. Martin just kind of throws caution to the winds, all kinds of strange and has questionable things with his sources. And so I guess having a sense that even if you're going to depart totally from your period, having read about that period first is an important step toward making things feel like they belong in that period. I don't yeah, want to turn this into just the gushing about Tolkien hour, but I did recently <laughs> just get through the uh, audiobook of The Hobbit, read by Andy Serkis, which I highly recommend. Support mm -hmm. your local library. Um, <laughs> and there was just this this bit where I had this moment of like, a lot of this story has been kind of silly and whimsical mm -hmm. because you know it's it it was a series of bedtime stories compiled together for continuity. It's cute like that. But there was this bit where Bilbo kind of returns to the Shire after several long chapters of the journey home, and he has this sudden like deep realization of the the absolute comfort and strangeness of returning from a place of constant anxiety and stress and nightmares to home and i was like ooh the world war 1 veterans popping mm. or yeah is that world war 1 yes <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's all it's popping out here and i sometimes you can really tell when something is just really personal to the writer and i thought mm -hmm. that was kind of a beautiful little moment and then of course mm -hmm. he expanded on that so much in lord of the rings uh and I think, you know, not to completely derail the question, but that's sort of like, this is coming from something that this this writer not just knows about, but deeply understands, can in a lot of ways strengthen a story to the point where complaints of authenticity don't even come up because it's not the point. It's about how how real does this feel in the Watsonian context of the story itself? 
So I, I think, uh, Garrett, the, the episode with, with you and, and Brett Devereaux was a really fun one because the point of like Game of Thrones on its surface looks more accurate to the average viewer because it's shittier and everything <laughs> seems worse. Like that's that is basically the card they play of like, look, it's gritty. It's realistic. It's like, mm-hmm. no, this is less descriptive of actual mm-hmm. medieval historical systems than Tolkien because Tolkien understood how, you know, how states operated, um, how, mm-hmm. um, you know, like land worked in, in systems and, you know, the, the, the balance between farms and cities, how mm-hmm. actual warfare happened, all of the like real world, like civic backgrounds to how you organize war efforts, the parallels to mecha- uh, mechanized warfare in World War One. Versus like Machine. with Game of Thrones, it's just ah yes, everyone bangs all the time and everyone <laughs> dies. Like okay, yes, it's it's very real politique, but that's not actually descriptive of any real system that ever existed anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's just grimy and trashy and vaguely themed after the War of the Roses, but not even a way that has anything interesting to say about it. It kind of mm-hmm. feels like the alternate universe in which porn exists, where, like, it's just normal for people to just start boning down at the slightest provocation. You know what I mean? Like, that's not how reality I, works. After you explain the rest again. of that sentence, yes, but not at first. <laughs> oh, you know the one. You know the alternate yeah. universe where porn exists. <laughs> anyway, uh, I will say that for context, at the time that we're talking about this, House of the Dragon is currently airing. Yes. I'm not watching it. Uh, no, I, I did see that uh, when it started coming out, all the people who were like, Game of Thrones, you hurt me. It's over. We're like, oh, baby, you've come back to me. And it's like, you, okay, you guys know you can watch other things, right? Um, but I remember- <laughs> like, hey, people enjoy it. It's good. Like, I'm, I'm just worried for what will happen. Yeah, I just don't want to see them get the hurt again. <laughs> um, but I, I remember, I think there's like, there's a lot of like pregnancy horror in the first episode mm, or so. And yeah. uh, it came out. At an awkward time for U.S. politics, and uh, I saw a lot of think pieces that were like, now more than ever, we really need this kind of horror blatantly emblazoned on screen. And I was like, all right, well, you guys have fun with that. I already know this is bad, so I'm just going to be over here hanging out with media that doesn't remind me of really gross things in real life. You know, that's what I like from my fantasy. But you know what? You do you. I guess if you needed this to tell you that uh, pregnancy horror is creepy and gross, I'm glad you know that now. (laughs) Um... Anyway, that was very much, I was like, all right, you know what? It's cool that people like this. It's not going to be my thing. And that's completely fine. Yeah. You know, as long as Tolkien's people are having fun. Tolkien's, Tolkien's great. great. We love Tolkien. Un- unambiguously yeah. great. <laughs> I'm on board. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, I am watching House of the Dragon, but I'm waiting until it's over to cast any judgment on it. Because I'm like, I remember what happened last time when I watched Game of Thrones. And I'm not going <laughs> to be fooled into making any statements way. ahead of time. I, um, I'm curious to watch the uh, Rings of Power solely yeah. on the basis of the architectural vibe. Because like Numenor... <laughs> slaps dude <laughs> yeah, I love like, like Hagia Sophia but it's a whole tower like oh man I love that <laughs> yeah, I want costume is very Byzantine mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm. I want Rings of Power to be good I was a little turned away when they were like here are all my elf boys and I was like where's all their hair but you know I'm, I'm rather shallow I yeah. thought it was cool that <laughs> Tolkien was like I'm gonna subvert traditional like 20s to 60s standards of masculinity all my manly men are gonna have gorgeous flowing locks and then the show was like we're gonna subvert the subversion everyone's got short hair now and i'm like oh it's riveting anyway it's the shallowest thing i could possibly judge it on if the show ends and people are like it's a masterpiece it's so good i'll probably go back and watch it because i'm curious but i uh i was burned by the hobbit movies i watched them all in theaters mm-hmm. and i didn't have a great time so with amazon being like we're going to give you the tolkien story tolkien never wrote i'm like i don't trust you as far as i can throw you but if you pull it off i'll be happy 
Um, Love the set design, though. Damn. (laughs) Yeah, lots of money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got time, I think, for one more question before we head out. So, Red, as per usual, this is your five-minute warning for the outro. Just get it ready Mm -hmm. in the back of Mm -hmm. your mind. Keep it, Mm -hmm. you know, locked and loaded just in case. Sure. Uh, This question comes from Jesse the Ant. To all, do you have any real-life superpowers? We were talking about this on Discord. Mine is I can sleep in any clothes, including jeans. So do you have any, like, special skills that you would consider a superpower in the real world? Hmm. Sleeping in any clothes, including jeans, is pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of yeah. daunted, to be honest. Mm. Hmm. Um, a tough one. I have this is chronic like... knee pain, and that means that when the weather changes, I can usually tell right before it's going to rain. I'm no. going to choose to think of that barometer. as a superpower. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bring an umbrella. Mm. I've been aching <laughs> I will say that when I'm like on the pursuit of like some remote ruin or whatever, I don't have to eat. I'm just like yeah. it's so focused oh in on God. things, you know, or like uh, you know, I'll go like, you know, a whole day, like hike 20 miles. Like just notice afterwards, like oh, I haven't eaten like a day. Yeah. Oh, that's um, amazing. I um, actually, yeah. Uh, similarly, I'm going to be that insufferable person who's like, my ADHD is a superpower. You know, live oh, your boy. truth. Because like, I know that it has problems. I know that it impedes a lot of stuff. But genuinely the ability to just kind of sit down and like nothing else is going to matter i am going to do an inhuman amount of work today if i can trick my brain into working with me on this like (laughs) it's it's the best kind of superpower because it sometimes goes out of control in dramatic ways um you know like the hulk uh but (laughs) if i can get it to cooperate the amount of progress i can do in a day is truly staggering and like there is nothing that quite compares to the feeling of like you know what I'm I'm exhausted and I'm starving and my entire body hurts because I haven't moved in eight hours, but I'm going to sleep so well tonight because I finally feel <laughs> like I did as much as I could have done in that. And on the flip side, there's a little bit of superpower angst associated because on days when I can't like reach my full potential and do absolutely everything I could conceivably do, I'm like... Yeah, I know I did six pages of comic progress, and I know I did like a minute of video progress, but it could have been more. I've failed, so you know, it, it's. I think it's the best kind of superpower because yeah. it has narrative stakes attached. Mm-hmm. I, I I do like this. I think we we could have given like unambiguous superpowers, but I like these ones that are all kind of gifts and curses. I um, I would probably have to say that mine is my pathological inability to relax, ever, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because like if. If I could be doing something, I'm going to want to do that thing. And I can only relax if I am so exhausted that I literally cannot do anything else, at which point I just fall asleep. Or if I am traveling and I have not been traveling lately. So I essentially am just like, well, I could either play video games or just do more stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a common thread in this room, I think. (laughs) yeah. uh, Yeah. And, you know. I personally keep a lot of project plates spinning specifically because that way when I am doing work, I can like, I'm like, oh, I'm tired of this. I got to put it down and do this other work instead because uh, that way it can all be progress. Uh, I know this doesn't work for everybody, but uh, it does work for the way my brain works, which is pretty ideal. Let's see. Do we have any like smaller superpowers that are less just like my work ethic, the way my brain works, <laughs> you know, little things? Um, hey, I got I'm really needs. good at identifying music. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, nice. This is oh. this is a thing that I've been told is unusual. Uh, but like, you know, when I, when I'm in like New York and there's somebody on the street who's like playing music, I catch on within like a bar of the intro. Like, oh, it's this cool. That guy's playing Careless Whisper on the saxophone. That's great. Um, 
And some songs it's easier than others, but like if I've if I've heard a song like two or three times, I can usually remember the whole thing and sometimes even sing the whole thing. Sometimes. Some singers get really weird with it. It's all Lord. I'll be completely honest. Lord constructs her songs in really, really weird ways. And a lot of the lines are completely different lengths or don't rhyme. And so I'll like read the lyrics and be like, what the fuck is happening? And then I'll have to listen to it like five or six times. And then I'm like, okay, I get it. She like stops here. Okay, yeah, sure. But yeah, my brain is really, really good at processing and remembering music and then identifying it quickly. I, not quite the same thing. I have found that if... Like, there are some times when I'm having a conversation and, like, the information that I receive through conversation just, like, goes right out of my head because I I need to work on that and that's a problem. But if I, like, learn something, it is rare that I forget it. So, like, there's things that I, I like, learned offhandedly or was mentioned, like, mentioned once in a lecture, like, seven years ago. <laughs> and I'll, like, in, in one instance, I was working on, on a video script for, I think it's actually the next one on Virgil, and I, like, pulled out a detail from from my head that, like, I had not seen in a source. I, I hadn't seen anything that, like, tipped me off to it, but I remember, like, oh, wait, there was this one sentence from this lecture, like, seven years ago, and then I looked it up, and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's what that was, and it's just like, boop, like, how did that, how did that show up? Where did that oh, come fantastic. from? Yeah, I used to do a quiz bowl in college, you know, the, the Team Jeopardy thing, mm. and so, yeah, that, that's the greatest attribute you can have, honestly, like that kind of flypaper memory, yeah. where things just kind of stick to it. It's like, why is that still there? Yeah, I, I have a similar... Blessing or a curse, I don't know. But yeah, these little things that stick in there. And it's like, oh, and often when I'm writing a chapter or writing a video, right, these little, like my footnotes, this thing I read at some point, it's like, oh, right, that'd be a fun thing to stick in here. Yeah. You died in the bathtub, you know, or whatever else. <laughs> Got hit and, with a bucket. Exactly, yeah, it's a bucket in the sauna, you know, Colonel Mustard. In early videos, I had to stop that because I would remember little details of like things that like, you know, one of my parents had told me or like that I remembered from like a myth book or like a class mm-hmm. when I was in third grade. And then someone in the comments would be like, hey, that's not true. And I'd look it up and be like, oh, wait, that isn't true. Oh, <laughs> but it was just true. It was in my head and I didn't think to question it. So I've, I've gotten better at questioning everything. Yes. A fine suite of heroes you would make. Uh, but I believe that it's time for the podcast. So, Red, are you ready to take us out? I'm always ready. Uh, Born I don't ready. know about that. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. As always, if you like uh, what you heard and you want to hear more, uh, there will be more podcasts coming out in two weeks. As always, it's bi-weekly, not that bi-weekly, the other bi-weekly. We also have videos going out every Friday, as per the usual. sometimes extra streams in the middle. I've been reading through Dracula, which has been very fun uh, at time of recording. Lucy just died. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> things can't get worse from here. So that's fun. Um, let's see. And of course, if you liked our guest, uh, and I'm sure you all did, he's very likable. You should check out Told in Stone on YouTube and get his book and also support your local libraries. And I guess <laughs> until next time, um, I've been Red. I've been Blue. And Garrett, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really lovely. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. And this has been an Overly Sarcastic Podcast. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Overly Sarcastic Podcast. We'll be back on October 19th with another thrilling installment, but if you miss us before then, be sure to check out Overly Sarcastic Productions on YouTube. Got a question for the pod? Head over to Ask OS Pod on Discord for a chance for your question to be featured in an upcoming episode. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. And if you really enjoyed the show, consider becoming a patron. Links to all that and our guest Holdenstone's book and content can be found in the show notes below.